Hello and welcome to the Negroni Talks podcast, brought to you from East London and supported by Campari. Set up to be lively, provocative debates on issues around architecture, the Negroni Talks are hosted at the Venetian restaurant Ombro in Hackney and organised by Architects for the Space with the assistance of Rob Fain and Bobby Jewell. The talks are designed to emulate the opinionated and convivial free-flowing debates found in the fin de siècle European Café Society, being fuelled by food, drink and particularly Negroni. There's no stage, no standing on ceremony and the audience are asked to participate as much as invited speakers and the chair for the event. These recordings are presented as they happen live and like the talks themselves with no frills and little or no editing to bring you the arguments of the evening direct and unfiltered. Hello. Hi, everyone, and welcome. This is the Negroni Talk 16 Jobs for the Boys. My name is Christine Murray. I'm the editor in chief of The Developer and creative director of the Festival of Place. And I'm formally the editor in chief of the AJ and the AR, which is where I started the Women in Architecture Awards. Um, after my uh, last maternity leave, I was made redundant. So I feel very well qualified to talk about some of the issues surrounding uh, women in property and women in construction. Um, so we're here to talk about how and why in property women account for just 15% of the overall workforce. And in architecture, it's about 28%, which is up 1% from the previous year. Just 19% of property boards include women, but over half of practicing solicitors are women, 45% of all NHS and hospital care doctors, 51% of doctors of psychiatry, 53% of those in clinical oncology, 78% of council officers are women, and 33% of council chief executives. And interestingly, now 40% of property investors are now women. So I share that because I think we can therefore save time and energy by starting this discussion that's stating that there's nothing actually wrong with the women in property construction and architecture. They don't need to lean in more, learn to ask for raises differently, be stronger, more assertive, have different relationships, different babies, babies at different times, or require different levels of care or flexibility than women in law or clinical oncology. Do we agree? Yes. Okay. So if there's nothing wrong with the women, then there's something wrong with development architecture, contractor, and property businesses. So um, if you're not retaining women, you're probably not retaining talent of all kinds. So what's wrong with this industry? I have this amazing panel who are going to tell you, and you guys are going to join in and help us to, to unpick some of these problems. So I have um, the great pleasure to introduce Angara Lewis of Pocket Living. Are you you're here? Yes, Palmer. wave. Palmer. <laughs> oh, sorry, Palmer. Yeah, yeah. Oh, my goodness. I have it wrong in my notes. I'm so sorry. Um, head of design at Pocket Living, providing creative and technical leadership across all 20 live, t 20, 20 live residential projects and acquisitions, managing Pocket's internal team of architects and Pocket's architect framework, um, including the tendering process, design, competitions, appointment, and architects on all Pocket projects. I've got Chris Brown of Igloo, the founder and executive chairman of Igloo Regeneration. Wave, Chris. 
also chair and non-executive director of the Igloo Regeneration Fund, Blueprint Igloo's partnership with Nottingham City Council, Creative Space, a space provider for the creative and digital media industries, the Chrysalis Fund, I'm gonna tell them all and then they're gonna all network with you. <laughs> PFB Igloo, the residential developer, homemade, are they wrong? Data Loft, the residential property data and analytics business. He's also a member of the UK government property advisory panel and other advisory boards. Dana Walker, Dana, Woohoo! Dana is the founder and director of Built By Us, a social enterprise that champions diversity and inclusion in the construction sector and recently won the prestigious National Mentoring Awards for their Fluid Diversity Mentoring Program. Dana started out as an electrician, then an architect, and is currently a board member of public practice and an elected board member for the ARB. Emily Lawrence from Just Gone Wiles. Emily is an architect and an associate of Jesco and Wiles with extensive experience in the residential sector, leading teams on award-winning projects including Cable and Roper Building for Night Dragon. Emily is also co-responsible for Perspectives, which is a series of provocative talks hosted by Jesco and Wiles that aims to connect and champion forward-looking thinkers that have an alternative and positive perspective on architecture and design today. Please welcome the panel. So I'm going to start with you, Angarad Palmer. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted you to describe the culture within the property industry, from networking to the boardroom. Okay. What's it like being outnumbered and overruled by the blue suits brigade? Yeah. OK. Um, yeah, so I've worked at Pocket now for about four years. Um, before then, I was at Hawkins Brown, so two very different environments. Um, so at Hawkins Brown, I guess it's very collaborative, open, um, huge sense of equality against you know any any sort of gender or any experience. And um, I met uh, Russ Edwards, who a lot of you probably know, and got on really well. And he said, you know, come work for me on um, that kind of dark side, I guess, and um, experience what it's like, and we can you know do some really good stuff together. So I took the leap, went to work with Russ, and you know he was a really good role model for me at the time. Um, we worked together really closely, uh, collaborated um, in the same sense as we did in Hawkins Brown, as I did in Hawkins Brown. And then um, he left, so I took over his role as head of design. And yeah, things changed, I guess, quite drastically for me. I was kind of f felt alone, I guess, in a sea of navy. Uh, suits and crisp white, bla uh, not blouses, <laughs> uh, shirts, <laughs> maybe blouses, not sure. And um, yeah, I had to kind of dig really deep and I guess become my own role, role model because um, there aren't many kind of females at, at the director level. And so had to kind of reach out to other role models in the industry and read books and yeah, kind of be my own uh, kind of sounding board, I guess, to get through that kind of political uh, networking uh, environment, I suppose. And Chris, does that, is that an industry you recognize? Um, not really. It's much worse than that. <laughs> um, <coughs> I, I think I'm here for diversity. Um, How uh, does that feel? <laughs> age. Age. Just age. Um, and I was just saying that when I went to college, uh, I was only the second year that women were allowed, so allowed into college. Um, 
and I, I have had this theory for quite a long time that um, everything's going to be all right because eventually my generation will die out and the women will come through and everything will go back to normal. Um, but I don't think that's right and Christine's one of the people who's probably educated me a bit on that. So um, I'm a charter surveyor. Uh, does anyone, f anyone complete this sentence for me, actually? It's a good, good test. 50% uh, of chartered surveyors are... Finish the sentence. <laughs> you can be rude if you like, I don't mind. Over 50, no. Boring, probably. <laughs> Higher than that. I thought I, I thought I heard the right answer then, but I'll give it. The, so the answer is public school boys. And, and currently, the, um, the proportion of charter surveying students, so this is something that you don't have to, there's no human interface. You just go on the website, want to be a student, sign up, pay your money. 75% um, are men. So there's, some, there's clearly something unattractive to women about being a charter surveyor. And it's some of that stuff. <laughs> and, you know, rugby, and drinking, and, and, and. Um, but I do quite strongly feel, and there's people in this room that know my business very well, so I'll probably get contradicted, but I kind of strongly feel that it's, it's the problem is for the blokes to solve, but what I don't understand is how you get through to the senior blokes my age. A um, couple of small incidents recently um how am i going to tell this one um <coughs> just trying to see how many people are actually tweeting at the moment um so so i got asked by a very senior architect um who i really respect um and who i genuinely don't want to demonize in this story um but i'm going to tell you his name anyway um so bob allies asked me to go and do a talk for Reba um, in Essex. I don't know if that's relevant or not. Um, okay. Uh, and I said, um, give me to the organizer, give me a bit more information. They gave me more information. I said, there's only men on this panel, so I, I won't do it. Um, and they said, oh, well, well, so if we can find a woman, will you do it? I said, yeah, okay. On that base, I would do it. Um, a few weeks later, uh, I hadn't heard from them kind of assumed it was not happening, but went on the website and discovered that they were promoting it with an all-male panel, including me. Um, so I kind of rang them up and said, what was it you didn't understand? Um, and what really disappointed me was Bob was on that panel. Um, and there's another one, and these are, these are minor things, but I think they're, you know, they're reflective of the issue. Um, so there's an event next week um, and it's five people that I went to college with and they're all blokes and they've decided it's a really good idea to have a breakfast event in central London to chat to each other in front of an audience about 40 years in the real estate industry and I'm like what don't you get but they're mates of mine but I don't know how to get through to them so I hope when you send me away from tonight you'll have told me how to get through to those guys
So, so Dena, so much of what you do, you've, you've been through the, elec the electrician world, you've been through the architect world, but so much of what you do is about short-circuiting or tackling some of these issues and actually advice and help and mentorship. So it'd be good to hear from you about some of these shared uh, stories. Um, yeah, absolutely. So I started as an electrician a long, long time ago at the age of 16, and I'd gone from an all-girls school to an all-male environment. That was very interesting. Um, they were not afraid to tell me to my face that women shouldn't be here, that black women shouldn't be here, that I would disappear um, very quickly, and I was taking somebody else, else's job who was far more deserving. And what I found, particularly with that group, in terms of how I was able to perhaps change their view, was that working with them actually made a huge difference. Um, a bit like what we're seeing at the moment in terms of our politics, I'm not going to bring up the B word, but um, it's very easy to kind of label and dismiss people. And once you're actually seeing somebody as a fellow human, female, etc., um, it makes it far more difficult to treat people poorly. Um, but treating people poorly has somehow become slightly embedded in the culture. So I started something called Built By Us um, a few years ago to try and address this by not only tackling and supporting individuals um, through mentoring and other forms of support, but also working with the organizations and giving them a space really to be honest and discuss what, was, what were the challenges for them because I think often we're kind of saying we need more diversity, but we're not really talking about the how and the what and what that actually looks like or what success looks like. And people feel far more comfortable to do what they always do, whether it's they go back to the same college to recruit, um, whether it's, um, yeah, there are lots of different ways that people just keep repeating the same mistakes over and over again. So really what we're trying to do is to challenge the kind of typical thinking, but also empower them to make those changes. Because people are kind of nervous about any kind of change. What are some of the simple things that you think companies could do today that would make a difference? Oh, goodness. Um, somebody talked about websites, I think, maybe earlier. Was that you mentioning websites? Yeah. 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 Um, so, so much of this is about role models and being able to um, see yourself reflected in particular spaces. And I think for a long time as an industry, we haven't really thought about that. We thought the main thing is that we show our portfolio of work and that's it, as if this kind of appears from nowhere and there aren't any people involved in it. This is an industry which is still very much about people, but you would never get that from the way people speak or explain or what they put on their websites, etc. The obvious things are also rethinking recruitment completely. But also, um, I would say one of the things that lots of companies do is to kind of break the psychological contract. So you, they've got maybe a nice website um, with the images that are attractive, but when people get in there and they experience what it's like, it's very different from what they've been presented with. So part of what I do is really about thinking through all of those processes, but also thinking about how organizations could be far more authentic, productive, and effective around diversity and inclusion. It's a good uh, transition to talk to you, Emily, because you're within an organization that has that director-level male perception, and you're trying to bring a positive 
movement, so it'd be good. We are, yes. Um, the, there's obviously a lot of discussion uh, around uh, the, the barriers to change. Why aren't things changing? Why aren't they changing fast enough? Chris and I spoke about this earlier on. There's, um, be it childcare or the macho uh, kind of working cultures, etc. And I think that um, there's a lot of female-focused events that, that I attend, that I go to for, for that support, for that networking. Um, but I often find that um, they lack any real drive towards the goal for more greater female representation, which is really what we need. And, and a lot of the events that I'm sure many of you go to, they, they don't have any female representatives at all. So there's a small group of us at Jessica and Wiles who have taken that need for greater representation and turned it on its head. And um, we have asked ourselves, instead of focusing just on gender, because obviously that, that doesn't seem to be working, what if we shift that focus to something that unifies us? So unifies men and women and make it about design. And even if we've engineered these events, and they're called perspectives, that's a, an unashamed plug there, um, we don't have to advertise that they are all female lineups. Let's just make it the norm. Let, let's just make it normal to, to have an all-female lineup. Um, and so I think um, at Jessica and Wiles, we, we are trying to, to push that, to, to simply normalize this, this idea about unifying the conversation around design and creativity. Uh, and n let's not try and make muddy the water with um, and have a, a them and us female male approach to it and that's what we're trying to do Angaran, you talked about what your web your office website before and what it shows to pocket living's website to the outside world and then what you felt was not representing and i think that's an interesting yeah. thing to share yeah as dana was saying i was relating a lot with that notion so i think it's really key for developers, architects, anyone in the kind of creative industry to be as tra transparent as possible with the way they advertise themselves and also be true throughout everything they do. So um, a lot of work we do at Pocket is um, kind of inherently kind of uh, focused towards females because a lot of females live in our homes. Um, they, I think they feel safe there. Um, some people say that they're more organized with getting the mortgage and that kind of stuff. I don't know whether that's true. But we do have a lot of females um, you know, living in our homes. And so we actually do have a lot of women working um, with us as well in, in our company. So probably quite high percentage now. So perhaps 60 to 70 percent. But back in about four years ago when I started there, it was probably roughly around 30 percent females, all in kind of low paid jobs. Um, you know, no one on kind of head of or associate or director uh, level. So things are changing and we are kind of revolutionizing the way we work. But for me, it's just 
not really quite enough. And so we're not really breaking through that glass ceiling to the director level. And that's where we need to see women sat at the board making changes and being those role models for others, other, other females um, to attract them to, to work with us and not just be working on the low, low paid jobs because you know, there's so much talent out there. And um, so I've been doing a lot of work with universities recently and colleges um, to try and, I don't know, break through and show them that you don't have to wear you know, a suit to be in, in this kind of industry or successful or to be a leader. You, know, you, don't, you don't have to be a specific, a specific stereotype. Um, so I think that would be key for you as well. So perhaps, I don't know, working on whether there are any female quantities. Is it QS, uh, quantity surveyor or what is it? What is it that you do? <laughs> I mean, I know, I know what your job role is, but in university. No, I know, but what did you, um, oh, in university? Q? Yeah, well, it was charter surveyors. Charter surveyors, yeah. So if there are any kind of female charter surveyors, I guess kind of um, interviewing them, putting them in journals, uh, making them kind of more role models, making them vo more visible through perhaps university, lecturing, that kind of thing, would perhaps um, yeah, attract more females to that kind of industry. Um, does anyone know who the chief executive of the largest property company in the UK is? The Crown Estate. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Is that Alison? Yeah. yeah. I so, win. So, so the <laughs> So Is that just because I have the microphone, though? Because, like, so did you guys all... So the, so the most powerful But she's outgoing, and she's being replaced by a man. The, the most powerful person at the moment... Christine's right. But at the moment, in the property industry, is a woman. So it's possible. We just need to multiply it. Yeah. I wanted to ask... Dan, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to... Dan, I'm going to bring you in on this one, because we talked about it before. So I, sometimes I get concerned about this idea that women need role models and mentorship can be misconstrued, that somehow we're like little children and we, we need to see big people or that we need mentorship because we need help because we're you know, downtrodden or, or insecure or lost. But I, I think there are positive reasons for that. So maybe you could address that whole mess. Yeah, absolutely. And I do understand why people might feel that because I think often mentoring is framed in that way. You know, uh, you know, you need help. I think when I first proposed a, a mentoring idea to a professional body who shall remain name nameless, um, they said, oh, it's a project for lame ducks. Um, and I was like, what? No, no, not at all. Um, I see this as customized learner-led learning. Um, it's an opportunity to develop in the way that you see fit. It's the mentee that actually leads the discussion um, and drives that learning. So in pretty much any other course that we're doing as part of um, qualifying for a built environment role, um, that's already set up for you. This is something where you get to say, okay, this is where I really want to sort of target. Um, in the programs that we do, we don't just aim at students. It's every age, every level. Um, and it's not just women, um, it's also people from black and minority ethnic backgrounds, LBGT+, and disabled people too. Um, anyone who um, wants to address their own career development under their terms, because I think so much of what happens is kind of um, top down. Um, and I think it's really about empowering people to take back control of their own career and development. I think it's worth talking about how people get jobs, which is mostly, what, by, by drinking with the right people or going to school with the right people? 
I go for lunch sometimes. 75% jobs are word of mouth. 75? Sorry, 75% of jobs are filled mm -hmm. by word of mouth. 83.2% of statistics are made up. But that, that, one, <laughs> that, one, that one was close. It seems roughly true. So oh wait, I'm going to make you say more than a good stat, which is you, you, are, you have said that you're trying at recruitment to tackle some issues. You said you brought in panels. Did you make that up? I, what, I, what I said was, <laughs> I think I'm doing something illegal. Oh, right. I shouldn't have mentioned that. Um, <laughs> uh, so we're recruiting for a, uh, a finance director at the moment, finance and investment director. Um, and I want to have an all-female shortlist, which I'm told is illegal, um, but seems like a good idea, and the political parties are allowed to do it. Um, so if you can find a man, is it okay? Um, why would I want to I do don't that? Know, I was just asking. Yeah. That was the panel. <laughs> no, as, as some as some people will tell you, we we lack diversity at the top of our organisation. So, you know, where that happens in politics, they have all female shortlists, and it's made some progress. Um, so it seems like a good idea, but I'm told it's illegal in recruitment. Uh, where does Emily? Oh, there you are. Oh, good. Um, no, sit. Please, right, don't sit. Running around after a small child. <laughs> Good. Um, so I wanted to talk to you about what you think the impact is on the young people in your organization from, from looking at whether, whether you think perspectives have started to break through. Oh, gosh. I, I really hope that it provides inspiration for them, uh, not just for the women in the organization, but for the guys as well. We have some of our directors come along they attend the events, we make sure of that. And it's about, uh, hopefully, broadening their minds, making people more aware of the language they use, the actions that they take, and, and breaking that, um, that cycle of unconscious bias. And uh, yeah, ju just becoming more of an inspiration. So not only for providing a platform for the women that we're allowing to, to speak at the events, but also for the younger generation and the guys in the office as well. So, I, and I think that's really important that these conversations need to happen with the guys. They need to be rooting for the women. They need to be our biggest advocates and trying to, to change things for us. So they need to be supporting us in this endeavor. Sometimes in many practices, you have this director level and yeah. then you have the associates yes. who are tend to be more gender balanced or diverse, yes. more, not always that much. And then the women leave. Yes. Yeah. Why did, where do they go? Why do they leave? Um, and how do you know when it's time to go? Uh, <laughs> um, well, um, you can Google and look at Jessica Unwell's website and you can see that there are seven directors, all men, and you go to the next tier down to the associate directors and it gets a bit better. You get two out of six are, are women. And then you get to the associate level, which is where I sit. Uh, and that's more than 50%, which is great. But there is this burgeoning glass ceiling there. And Chris and I were talking about this earlier. And, and I feel very positive, And I feel that eventually it will break. Um, and obviously, over the years, it's changed from 
when you were at university and only being the second year to, to allow women onto the course. Um, and now we're, we're seeing, obviously, a lot more women going up the, the career ladder. But there is still that... I agree. It's kind of that around maybe childbearing age. Um, I hate to say it. And, and then you look at practices and you say, well, they don't allow flexible working conditions or... Um, and we had it in our own place. For a while, there were this, uh, the, the kind of practice updates and practice announcements on a Friday evening. Well, that doesn't work for a lot of people in the practice. A lot of people just want to get home on a Friday night. They want to enjoy their family time and kick off their or, weekend. Or not work. Yeah, or just or, or have not have, yeah, have, have <laughs> or, a life. Or, yeah, yeah. or turn off the computer at 5.30. Yeah. So, so our place, I've noticed over the last few years, we, we've stopped doing that. We, we, there's now a tendency to, to have a practice breakfast and you get a lot bigger attendance there than, than on a Friday night at 5.30 or 6 o'clock or whatever. Thank you. Um, I just wanted to pick up on your point about um, child-rearing age and caring and that kind of thing. I think there's something in terms of a, a leadership issue and a demographic issue that people aren't really talking about, which affects all of us, which is ageing. So the demographics for the construction industry, we're an ageing industry, some ageing faster than others. Sorry, I'm looking at you because... <laughs> <laughs> only because... Told you that was why I was here. Only because the RICS um, demographic data shows that actually that's one of the fastest in terms of um, ageing uh, discipline. Um, but one of the things that nobody is talking about is um, elder care, which is going to affect all of us. So this idea, I think from the, from the past and to a certain extent now, it's been about childcare. But actually this is the thing that we're not really ready for, prepared for, thinking about. Um, I believe that um, thinking about diversity, thinking about flexibility and all these other things are leadership issues, but they're also the disruption that the industry needs to future-proof it, because things are not going to stay the same. The demographics are changing. Can, can I do a quick survey? So <laughs> it's a, apologies for this, it's a blokes-only survey. Yeah, there are a few. Um, I think that's illegal. <laughs> <laughs> So, how many of the men in the room have taken more than the two weeks parental leave? Excellent. We have some role models. Um, if, if the law allowed financial, complete financial equality between men and women, which it doesn't, um, would, that, would that change um, anyone's view? And this, the women can answer this one as well. Would that make the difference? Do you want to lift up your hand if that would make a difference to your family? If you can, yeah. Maybe. So, um, I don't know if this is quite answering your question, but for me, the um, for me, if you really want to make a difference, you do need to look at the men and you need to make paternity leave and longer than two weeks compulsory because that will be a game changer. And at the moment, it's voluntary and only 2% of men take it. Uh, so you, you need to look at genuine equality 
because at the moment there's this attempt at equality, which is shared parental leave, but it's optional. You, you need to make that and everything else absolutely equal. It, it sounds like you know about this stuff. Do you know the stats from, is it Iceland and Finland or somewhere? I don't know about Iceland and Finland. I know Japan, men get one year of paid leave. Yeah. So I, and no I, one takes it. I, I don't, I don't, well, so I don't know the stats, <laughs> but I was trying to be optimistic. In, and I think it's Iceland and Finland. Um, it's equal and uh, parental leave is broadly equal in those countries now. And so it's doable, you know, it's just, we're not doing it. Sweden. Thank you very much, Tom, about elder care, because I'm having to look after very aging parents who are declining massively. So waiting, you know, working on now, so that's an issue that's just not being talked about. But I would like to just maybe discuss what Chris is saying about, um, I was having coffee with my very good friend Julius, who's a property developer, was an architect, and he's taking one year's parental leave. Very simply, this is in Berlin to be fair, it's not in London, because the German government allows him to have a year's parental leave. It's, it's not subsidized by the company, he gets lesser pay than if he would return to work, but he didn't want to. He wanted to spend that first year with equally with his wife and son. So I think, you know, the, the reality of commercial practice is pretty horrendous uh, at, at, uh, you know, across the board. And uh, I, it's not an issue that you know, maybe we can discuss now, but I think the question about the desire or the, you know, the possibility to do that is actually subsidized by the government, not by commercial practice. It's just an insight rather than anything else. I think on that, uh, on that note, I wanted to bring up under-resourcing in this industry, as in working people really hard so you have less people to employ, um, which, is, which is kind of typical. Yeah, that's it related, isn't it? It's about fees. But sometimes some practices get enough fees to resource it properly and choose not to. So that's, that's talking about profit and other things too. Yeah, so anyway, can we bring that up about re who, who wants to tackle that one? Angara, do you want to tackle that, Dana? Yeah. No, Emily? No. Yeah, Emily's in there. She's, she's <laughs> No. <laughs> no, no, no. Okay, someone out there who has a lo the long hours culture in offices where there's an expectation to work late at night or on weekends, etc. Yeah, there we go. A brave soul. Absolutely, and I'm really glad you've brought this up, but um, bullying for unrealistic deadlines in general. It's not only about um, female, etc. Absolutely. However, it, I think in that case, it actually advantages women and men with children. I don't have children, and apparently that means I don't have a life. So many, many times, and I'm sure many of you have had that, you don't have the priority because you don't have a family to go back to. First of all, I do have a family. I just don't have children. And I'm really glad you brought the issue of elderly care. And I, I still actually have a life. So um, absolutely, but it's more generally about flexibility in this industry, I think. Can I expand, Christine? Yeah. Just, just quickly, um, on those last two points, we are going to visit age as an issue in the growing talks. 
We didn't expect that coming up today. But to go back on to Christine's question, the overworking, the over-resourcing, um, is that because, you know, a lot of us are maybe familiar with that or have experienced it at some point, is that because we're kind of fixed into a system of expecting that we have to work to perform to get the kudos before we can just take our salary and move on or, you know, build your career and move on. You're almost going in there to try and impress all the time and it's a kind of social fix that that expectation hits some more than others. I mean, for instance, on a building site, this talks not just about architectural offices, it's about construction industry, property industry. On a building site, people work extremely hard. It's a hard job. Women in a building site, and there's an increasing number, but it's tiny, are still going to be expected to, to sort of work very, very hard. And you get kudos for that graft. Yeah? Dana, I, I want you to talk about construction fix. sites at the moment, because you would talk about the kind of toll that it's taking the kind of um, on construction at the moment. Um, there have been a couple of rather disturbing reports over the past couple of years about the impact of mental health, particularly on construction. And as a sector, we suffer some of the worst outcomes. So when, um, I think it might have been a government report, looked at right across UK sectors, they said construction was far the worst and actually we have the highest number of people taking their own lives. And I don't know if you saw recently the um, big nuclear power station um, there was a high number of um, incidences there. Um, and sort of going back to your point, there is something within the culture that kind of says, yeah, you know, if you're working really hard, if you're you know, giving it all you got and more, that's a good thing. We've really got to get out of that mindset. But that's why I think diversity is a disruptor for our industry. Because that... Yeah, there is a lot of that, especially where I work. So perhaps um, kind of more traditionally um, favoured masculine traits. You know, obviously I don't um, kind of agree with any of these, but you know, working late, taking risks, being competitive, um, you know, are seen to be associated with success, especially you know where I work. So yeah, a lot of us females have yeah and. Had to, had to work really hard to kind of break that cycle. And yeah, we seem to, seem to be succeeding and seems to be kind of infiltrating throughout the company, but um, it's still kind of entrenched um, you know, throughout the company and, and the construction industry we work in. Yeah, absolutely. I remember, um, now I look back on it, I think this person was fantastic to do this, but one of the directors used to grab his yoga mat and be out of the door at 5.30. But everyone would be like, oh my God, how is this guy leaving at 5.30? You know, he doesn't ca care. But actually that meant that it gave permission to everybody else to do that. So part of it is about behaviors from the leadership and um, executive of our organizations, making sure that they're doing the things that they want other people to do. Um, thanks, I'm Claire Benny. Um, I just want to say two things about money. Um, one is, I was pondering why law and medicine kind of work quite well for women and I just thought actually they're really well paid and I'm afraid <laughs> um, and so 
the woman's salary in the household is likely to be an important salary and therefore if you're an architect and sorry I know this isn't just about architecture then your salary is likely to be less significant and therefore that's why women don't do so well I think in architecture um, the other one is about real estate in general involves a hell of a lot of money like a lot of money that people are putting at risk and actually I think that creates a bullying culture within our industry. Um, the worst two phone calls I've ever had in my life are from male developers and I still remember them now and actually they were quite frightening to be honest with you because um, there's a lot of money involved and I think that drives certain behaviours so I think that one is going to be an interesting one to overcome. I think the point of, of bullying we talk about uh, even outside of that is within within practices themselves which has kind of been alluded to is around that crit culture as well and this idea of reputation and award winning and 70% 80% is never good enough it's got to be aiming for 200 300 award winning sterling prize whatever which results I think in a lot of um, late night unproductiveness as far as I can tell and and ordering things in and going in circles um, and, and upside down and, and, and ripping things up and, and lots of drama, which, which makes good film, maybe. So but does it make good buildings? So has anyone heard of something called the Happy Manifesto? There's, a, there's at least one nod over there. Um, uh, it's actually a mate of mine. They're based down in Aldgate. Um, and their, their simple idea is that uh, if you've got a happy workforce, you'll have happy clients. And if you've got happy clients, you'll have a prosperous business. And, and the people who kind of signed up to that are, um, spend their time kind of sharing tips about what works and what doesn't work. Um, and I, I absolutely don't want to hold Igloo up as, as an example because it, it isn't. But... But we do, um, we've signed up to Happy Manifesto. We do lots of that stuff. Everyone, everyone's place of work is their home. Um, no one's allowed to send emails out of office hours. You know, just kind of basic, kind of relatively sensible things. And I think it works. And a lot of other businesses out there, Claire might absolutely be right about the property industry, but a lot of other businesses in a lot of other sectors make it work. Hi, my name is Magdalena. I'm from Electro Lighting. So coming from a background of architecture and lighting, um, I really relate to these long hours and how difficult it is as a woman to work. But in the past years, the new company, the, well, Electra, we have been changing um, the way we work. So we are one of the few companies that work four days a week and we leave at 5.30. So, but I think it comes all from leadership because um, the founder, Neil knows he's one of the biggest feminists so our company only have like two male staff, including him. So it's basically a female company. Uh, and I have noticed that in the beginning when I, when I started working six years ago, I thought like these people, they don't work. They're not stressed coming from a company that I would leave at midnight just only to be picked up at three o'clock to go to the airport to have my next site meeting. Um, I just was shocked and then I realized like, no, actually, Everybody's happy, but actually is more efficient. And now we change to become more efficient to drive the company to work into four days a week. Um, it kind of shocks the industry to say, like, sorry, we're not working on Fridays, but you will have your deadline on Thursday. 
So I think it's about changing the mentality and having a good leadership. Because I don't need to be more aggressive. Uh, because I thought in the beginning, like, to be respected, I had to be more aggressive and stand my point in the point that I will be a bitch. Uh, and I don't necessarily need to stand in that position in this way. So now I think it's like we are more calmer, uh, less stress, and we have a better work uh, ethos. So I think this is what we are changing. And I think most of the people in the industry is recognizing that, and they're trying to get into the same. So let's just share. Uh, uh, hi, my name is Murray Kerr. Um, I run a very small practice called Denison Works. And, um, I, I, well, first thing to say is I, I, like Chris, act illegally when I need to um, and make sure that we employ women uh, when I, you know, to get the balance of the office right. Um, but the, the thing I wanted to talk about, I suppose, was about working hours. And I know, Chris, that you... Um, uh, are actively keen to keep people working at normal hours. But it's a thing that I've been wondering about for a long time as architects continue to um, overwork, particularly junior staff. And we're doing that, or I'm not doing it, but I'm competing against people who are. And we're doing that as a profession to get work. And I sort of wonder and seeing as I have some developers here, <laughs> um, whether clients would be interested in signing up to something that stops it happening, because the only reason it is happening is to win work. And I run, I, I used to work all hours, and I used to love it, and I realized, actually, it's, I, as Christine says, it's not the best way of working. And I want an office that's happy and I want people to go home and have a nice time. I want them to be thinking about what we're doing when they're not at work. But we're competing against people who don't do that. And um, I, actually the last Negroni talk I was at, and I may be going to steal Dinah's line <laughs> here, I don't know. But uh, there was a conversation at the last Negroni talk about gossip and... Um, Ishigami came up about not paying staff and somebody very eminent who did taught me way back in the day um, made a big thing about him not paying staff and I know that he doesn't pay staff and uh, until we get rid of these double standards and people standing up for what um, actually they do and not just what they say were, uh, there's always going to be a problem I think. Hey, sorry. I, I don't think that was my line. That's probably my other half. She's gone home. Christine, I think often what you show us in the press or have done in the past are, are the statistics that we need to kind of compare ourselves to. But they're all, and we're always worse than the med medical profession. I've got two kind of nearly adult, well, one adult, nearly adult daughters at the moment, and I'm so embarrassed by our profession, and yet they're so optimistic about it. Um, uh, my eldest daughter's training to be a doctor and she thinks that um, they're all dying out, the old guard, because she can see it in front of her eyes. Each generation is less um, male-dominated. And, and, and I keep telling her it's not the case in architecture. Which professions or which, which bits of the industry are we most like? And I just Googled recently the financial sector. It, it's about money and power. 
we're, we're, we're bolted on to a massively powerful and kind of macho-dominated industry. The other day I had some git from a major you know, developer saying to me, oh, when in the real world. And I thought, well, Name what real names. world do you know? Come on. <laughs> never, never. Um, what real world am I living in that you're not living in, where there's human beings there that we're not listening to and we're not paying attention to? We'll get up in the morning and do a radio program at 20 past six. I don't imagine any of you are going to be awake. But I'm just going to remind everybody that that's our duty and that's our job. We're building buildings for human beings, but it's not about money and power. How can we break that connection? Because we can talk about flexible working hours, but across the board, but how come the medical industry is doing all right without the flexible working hours across the board? They do, but we, we, our industry is, is, it really needs to have a good hard look at itself. And, and who are we most like, not who are we most not like? I mean, do you, do you know, Christine? I don't know. Yeah. Okay. I will do my research and I will get back to you. <laughs> well, I was just listening to quite often we find ourselves saying, oh, well, the industry should do this. The bosses should do this. The role models should do that. But what are we doing personally? And one of the things that we discussed uh, both was, say, um, paternity leave. Why aren't more men going out there and saying, I want my paternity leave? So, and I'm not going to name any names, but uh, my partner's an architect as well, and he works for a major architectural company. One of his colleagues recently said, look, I want to sabbatical. I want to go out on paternity leave. Um, but will you let me do this? The boss said, well, you're excellent. Of course I'll let you do this. I want you back. And I'm just thinking, why don't we have that faith in ourselves, in, ha in the fact that we're good? Same with late working hours. If you are good, you should be good enough to do your work within your seven, eight, whatever your working hours are, and then go home. And fine, there are days when we all need to do that a little extra something. But I think if you are good, you should know this, and you should fight for it, and you should ask for whatever you're worth. And I think quite often in the profession, people just don't. And maybe it's about time we started asking for more. We started saying, actually, I am overworked. And if we are not happy with that, maybe going home and maybe looking for a new job. Because if more of us did, then this sort of culture of taking the piss, forgive me, would just stop yeah, sooner I, rather than later. And I've, I've witnessed crits where it's five o'clock and then they say, and I'd like to see them tomorrow morning. The, I'd like the drawings tomorrow morning. So I think in that point, uh, when you get to that, it, you've got to look for another job, right? Yeah. Did, did you... Um, yeah, I, I'd just like to say to architects that you've, um, and particularly female architects, you've just got to look beyond your CAD software and look for the power. Go where the power and the money is. Stop being architects. There are far too many. There aren't enough good clients. And quite frankly, if there were more female clients in the development industry, the whole world would be a much better place because there are just too many asses with cufflinks who drink at lunchtime, who hold all the money and make these ridiculous decisions based on some sort of false sense of risk and the fact that they can work some very basic spreadsheet. 
and 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 actually you know the development is far more sophisticated than that and it needs breadth in people who get involved in the industry and i think there should be more women so change yeah. jobs here, here. Um, thank you uh, i just wanted to uh, in discussion with uh, the former dean of school at the at ucl alan penn there was a discussion about why um, there was a lack of diversity, in ethnic minorities in particular, coming through. And he said very simply, they Google how much an architect's going to earn and spend five years doing it and racking up 150 grand. So we were talking about two things, ethnic minorities and people coming from a marginalised economic background, poor people. They can't go to architecture school, it's not possible, they're not going to come through. And I'm, and I'm actually concerned that the 17-year-old you know, who's applying for architecture school Googles how, much, how many women are in the industry, uh, all the statistics that we've uh, you know, been told, and they go, forget it. I'm not going into an industry like that. So it's only going to get worse, potentially. Dana, you've got more experience in diversity, uh, attracting mm -hmm. diversity. Yeah, I think, I think those are really good points. Um, we don't talk about class and income um, and everything sort of attached to that um, enough. I was lucky enough to go through when it was still free and I got a maintenance grant because we were free school meals and all that kind of stuff. But I'm really unusual in terms of a profile for going into um, architecture. I am hopeful that the apprenticeship routes, which will take you right through to the end, um, where you can draw down funding to cover the fees, is going to make a difference. However, you're right. Everyone is Googling you know, how much you're going to earn. And even if your fees are being paid for, it still doesn't stack up. So we, I think it's going to end up going, circling back around to that discussion about sort of fees and business model, etc. cetera. Um, and we probably don't have time tonight to really get into it, but something there needs to start to shift in order to attract a much wider variety of people or to your point it's disruption yeah. and actually the bits of the discussion the bits of the industry that don't work are obsolete mm -hmm. and a lot of the women that i know have left architecture are doing really interesting great stuff they don't die or vaporize or move to the suburbs they're amazing right they go ahead yeah sorry me again i'm not i'm not going to mansplain here but some of the things that Dinah and Sarah are picking up. I want you to throw back at the panel and try and figure out. Dinah, we, we, we do stuff up in Hackney, don't we? I was there the other day there, and um, oh, I was very much in the minority. It was very female client, yeah? And I thought that was good. I liked that. Um, and I'll put it to the, the, um, the panel. Um, how do you get, and how do you get more women as clients in positions where they're commissioning and changing things for the real and secondly how do you train them as well as this the Sarah's point is maybe just taking the bull by the horns and doing it but is there a way of training them too training. skills training So how to how to train up women to become clients? And or where, and where to meet women clients? I think you're saying. Yeah. Okay. Where do women clients I think hang out? 
For me, I didn't really, uh, I didn't really consider the step too much. I kind of just took a risk in a way, and um, just I don't know, had some balls and decided to, you know, take the chance. But obviously, that's not really going to work across the board. Um, so one thing we've been doing um, at Pocket is going to um, women in leadership training. So it's kind of teaching us to become leaders in our own right and not having to kind of um, adopt those kind of masculine traits that I was talking about earlier. So, you know, being risk adverse, self-reliant, um, competitive. I mean, I, I actually kind of hold those uh, masculine traits kind of naturally. I always have. But, you know, the training, uh, the leadership training that we're going through is telling us that we can, you know, hold... Uh, masculine traits, all feminine traits, so being collaborative, um, working together. But I was also thinking about how do you understand that there are areas where you can Okay, yeah. How did you find out about being a client? It's through networking, really. So um, going to events like this, meeting people like my ex-boss, so Russ, who a lot of you know. Um, I guess, yeah, talking to people... Um, other than you know people within your practice and architectural practices, um, and I guess yeah, just reaching out and, and trying to make connections. Sorry, just to follow up on that, I think it's a really interesting point. Um, I always felt like architecture was a bit of a conveyor belt. I don't know if um, you guys felt that as well. You kind of go one, two, three, and then maybe an associate and so on and so on. What's interesting about the people that come onto things like the fluid program, the mentoring program that I run, often in terms of their career development, they're looking at how they might step across. And we're getting increasingly, the next generation is saying, we want to be client side. We want to understand that world. We want to maybe cross into a, another area. So I think it is happening, but incredibly slowly, but it's not a clear path. It's not a clear progression path. So I think that is something that needs to be tackled. How can we maybe move talent around? Um, sorry. Okay. sorry, go ahead. Oh. Well, I think that's probably part of the problem. Um, men probably uh, need to interrupt less um, in meetings and involve women who are in the meeting. It might sound really simple. But that's why um, that lady, kind lady there was like, you go first. That wouldn't happen if uh, that was a man, no mentioning their names. <laughs> no, you can't interrupt, Steve. Um, but that's a really simple way. If there's a woman in the room, or even if there is, I mean, it crosses genders, really, or anything, you know. If there's someone quiet in the room, bring them in. It's quite simple. Like, you don't, you know, or if someone else isn't, if a man is interrupting a woman, then, you know, if you're a man, then step in and go, you know, I think you were speaking there, whatever your name is, and, um, you know, bring people in. It's really simple, but I see it so often. And I think, um, as a woman who chairs a lot of things, um, I um, notice it with female panellists, and tonight we haven't seen it at all, in that, you know, you get men talking across each other all the time. So I think it's a really simple thing. So as a man, if you're in a meeting with women, just think about your behavior and how you're you know, interacting with your, with your fellow men, and also think about how the women in the room are presenting themselves because it's not that they haven't got anything to say but it's because they're polite enough to let people finish what they're saying and then let other people have a chance to speak and I think that's probably one of the main takeaways we can maybe have from this evening am I right <laughs> <laughs> and now over to my learned friend <laughs> I have to 
say that I have to say that that is also a matter of general politeness. I don't think there is yes there is a tendency of, of, on men on interrupting and sort of bullying into meetings, but there is a general politeness thing. Um, it's funny. I've been experiencing this recently. It's quite funny. I don't know how to. Sorry, closer. I wanted to talk to you about one uh, event that I've taken part, and uh, it's more regarding the previous question. Um, but I think with regards to how can we implement these um, policies for a better culture at work, and some people have started this already, so I think it would be good to share the knowledge. Um, and is called the Architect Mental Wellbeing Toolkit. I don't know if any one of you is um, familiar with it. Um, I went to the launch, which was last June. Um, is, there is a number of practices. I think at the moment is, uh, is an association is supported by a number of practices and by the Architect Benevolent Society. I'm not part of it. I just went and I thought, wow, that's great. I gave it to our office, but for now it's on dusted, uh, <laughs> full of dust on someone's desk, but you know, that's the beginning. Um, and I think it's great. They basically developed a sort of uh, toolkit for mental well-being of um, of all the employers, employees, um, office office culture, overtime, support system, and staff education, caring for students in practice, contracts and client relationships. And I think their idea, I can't speak for them, but I think by, by the chats I had there, the idea is to sort of develop a um, sort of standard that then practices can, um, you know, um, subscribe and then put it on the website. So if any of you were interested in doing this, I find myself promoting, and they don't even know me, but you know, I think it's a good thing. Um, because we should just stick to together with, you know, if someone does, um, you know, set up something interesting. I think we should all back it up. That's it. Yeah. Um, hi, I'm Hannah. Um, I am one of the few women who is a chartered surveyor as well. Um, so, <laughs> and I would say it's not because I know quite a few women actually who are chartered surveyors, and it's not because of lack of interest. It's because there's a general lack of women in the industry. Um, and all of the women I do know who do it, do it because they know it's part of the professional development route, and it's just a, necess it's a necessity to prove their, their level of professionalism. So that's just by the way. I'm also a client as a woman, and I completely agree. Um, there is a lack of representation of women in the room, full stop. Like in, and I work on my site, um, my site's in Stratford, and I work on site. So I'm also in a construction site. There's a lack of women on site, full stop. There is a lack of women who are doing professional um, jobs in the site office, full stop. And then there's even less women who are developer, um, do, who are the client. I am the only client on my project as a woman. Um, but I've also been in meetings with 16, 18 architects. There are only two women in the room, all junior women, by the way. And I'm the only other woman on the client side and an ethnic minority. What, you no what I notice from rooms, and one of the things that I would like to encourage all of the women to do is, and not to counter the lady over there, but speak up, right? We are the only people with our voice in the room. 
If you keep quiet, we'll never be heard. We have a completely different perspective, right? And so waiting for someone to give you the opportunity to speak up, that is a falsehood. You have to take it for yourself and speak up or they'll never think you have a voice. That's personally my perspective. And I'm not saying maybe I am, I have the aggressive traits uh, and maybe I am just more masculine in that approach, but I, I, I realized this as I got up in my career that I am one of the only few women ever in a room. And if I don't speak up with a different perspective, no one else would. Um, so that's one of the things I would encourage you with. My final thought, and it's more of a question to everyone, is what is the responsibility of women in senior positions to help the women in junior positions and or trying to become leaders? Like, I tend, to, when I am another woman in a room, it's because there's someone on an executive board or is a director, and I question if they are supporting me in the way I would like to be supportive or checking in, and I don't know if there was a responsibility of the women who are also in those positions to turn around and pull people up with you and also speak up for the help, uh, to help other women get into those positions. That's my question. Hi. <laughs> Um, so I'm kind of tangentially in architecture because I work in PR and before I worked in architectural PR I worked in the public sector and I think it's so interesting for me seeing the way it works in this industry versus how it works in the public sector which is not exactly known for being like super modern and innovative but like for so many things like for example um, in the public sector people are super conscious of like not having any women so they'll say oh we need to make sure that we've included a woman and in architecture I was in my old practice and they said, oh, we've got this technology group. And I said, oh, there's no women. And they went, yeah, none applied. And I said, well, do you think you could ask some if they could apply? And they're like, oh, that wouldn't be fair on the men if we asked them. So it's like the most basic level of thing you can do. And if we're talking about basic thing you can do, if you think there's a woman who'd be good in a job, say to her, hey, you'd be really good at that. Like you should apply. Like you're not giving men an advantage, like a disadvantage by doing that. You're just kind of suggesting it and helping and nurturing um, and like, you, no one ever puts the salary on a job spec. So like people ask for insanely low salaries and I, I want to put the salary on and say like, ask for more, ask for more. And I'm always saying to like the more junior women who I speak to in the PR group, like ask for more money, ask for more money, ask for more money. And like, they're like so pushed not to because all the support functions of practice are just seen as like, like girly stuff. And ever, we get called girls. It's like, I'm nearly 30, I'm not a girl. Like, stop calling everyone who works in admin, marketing, and business support a girl. Like, refer to, and like, oh, such and such is marketing girl. Oh, the marketing girl for the client. Well, how about the marketing manager for the client? And how about the marketing manager for your business? Like, stop calling us girls. There's so many little things like that, that like, when I say it, everyone's like, oh, of course you'd say it, you're a woman. But if a man could please say it next time you hear it, like, oh, that's the marketing manager, not that's the marketing girl. It just makes a tiny, 1% difference that will add up to something eventually. And I think like it does matter. Hi, um, I just wanted to ask a question. Obviously, um, we're being told to push forward and to you know, get out there and speak up. Um, that works brilliantly uh, while you're young. Uh, bringing age back into it. Um, uh, when you get slightly older, you're getting into more senior positions, the double bind kicks in, and as the older woman, you start getting, paying the penalty for speaking up, and uh, you're seen as unlikable, 
This is a confessional. Uh, and uh, and, and likability is an essential part of moving forward in an organization. And if you don't have that, you, you're not going anywhere. But at the same time, if you make yourself too likable, you're not going anywhere either. Um, that seems to be a fundamental part of of the problem and why lots of senior women drop out. Any thoughts? Yeah, when you're no longer a girl, you're an old lady, right? In between that, for a little bit, you might be a mum, and then you have other priorities. Yeah. Uh, it sucks. I don't know. Does anyone want to say something more complicated than it sucks? Yeah, I hate it. Um, there's, yeah, there's, I, I'm going to take this new... Oh, and there's a man. There's a woman over here, and then there's... Where are we in terms of women on site, in terms of bricklayers, plasterers, electricians, contractors, laborers? I mean, I'm doing a project at the moment, and um, I have to say, embarrassing, there's not a one woman in the entire team um, that the contractor is able to find from the lo local labor market, as I think about it, in this country. I also do project in India. We've got the same problem over there, but I kind of think it'd be a little bit further forward over here, but it's not. Quick answer, 1% or less in terms of trade and craft side. So when I was an electrician back in the probably late 80s, um, yeah, it was a real kind of big deal that I was doing it. But it still is now. It hasn't changed very much at all. And if you look at the Office of National Statistics um, data over the past 20 years, it's kind of basically stayed exactly the same. Um, mm. Pipeline, talent pipeline. Um, I think it was interesting. I used to work for the Construction Industry Council, um, and we used to do work with careers advisors, etc. Most of whom would never actually say to someone, and particularly a woman, to come into construction. Uh, a big part of this is just the general image of the industry. Somehow, architects don't quite fall into this. We're still seen as a little bit glamorous but almost every other bit of it is seen as not particularly glamorous or a nice place to be. So we found that careers advisors, careers advisors were saying, um, you know, don't go there. Don't even think about it. Um, the other thing that they said as well is that the image of the industry in terms of its economics, the fact that we were kind of boom and bust, it wasn't seen as a sort of safe place. If you're gonna spend that much time sort of studying and learning, why go into that industry, go into something more stable? Yeah, um, I've actually noticed that um, there's quite a few women in modular uh, factories. So I've been to quite a few around the country, and um, the the class, the, the the circumstances, and the working environment is quite similar to a university or a co or a college where you might learn um, how to pl you know plumbing or electric electrical um, skills, but it's all in a you know clean, safe environment, in internal. Um, so I think there might be a change in trends there with more females coming into working um, in the kind of modular sector rather than traditional where, you know, there's harsh, cold working environments, cold and wet, and, you know, often, you know, wolf whistles and all those horrible things that come with it, as we've, I'm sure, all experienced. Um, so, yeah, I'm hopeful that, you know, perhaps the change in technology and construction will, will change, uh, kind of make gender more equal on the building sites. I wanted to back up the comment about girls because I was at a recent event that was the launch of something and the person who was presenting was saying, now I think we have something for the girls. Now where, where are the girls now? And I was expecting girls, like little, because he was like, he was like, where are the girls, where are the girls? And it was um, a bouquet of flowers for the director. 
of the festival. And, and I just thought, my God, like, where do you start to explain to someone like that? But I think we, there's a microphone over here. Um, as, um, as part of an ethnic minority, my background is I'm an Indian. And also, I'm a former practicing architect who's now moved into comms. So I have a lot of um, perspectives I can offer. But very briefly, um, I think one of the, I can't speak for all Indians. But one of the reasons why I feel Indians aren't attracted into the construction industry in particular, because there's no money in it. Most Indians follow money. So if you have in your career fair and you see, oh, the construction industry architect starting salary is 20, 20 grand, whereas a finance graduate starting salary is 35, 50 grand, you know, you know where they're going to go. They're not going to go and, and, uh, for the measly starting salary. So I think that's, that's the point. How we change it. I have no clue, but I think that's the stumbling block where you don't find a lot of Indians entering the construction industry. You'll see them in property and real estate, yes, because they're pumping in the money and they're in that investment level at client side, but probably not so much in the architect brand, probably in engineering, because engineering offers more salaries. Um, now, as a, as a woman who left architecture, um, to answer Christine's question as to where do these women go, um, where they, surely they don't disappear. They um, come and work in media. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> there we go. But I was fortunate enough to join Dana's Fluid program. Uh, I was one of her first mentees. And I remember when I saw the ad and I thought, oh my God, this is phenomenal. Why don't we offer this as standard? And so thanks to her program, she matched me up with a fabulous uh, mentor. And that mentor empowered me to ask for stuff. So following the other comment about speaking up and asking for stuff. So I was very... Uh, very gutsy, very um, walk straight into the director's office. You know, I want this. I need an upgrade in salary. I need this, 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 that, and the other. And I would get it purely because I asked for it. And I noticed most of the other peers at my level didn't because they didn't ask. And when I would say, go and ask, speak up. Oh, no, no, I'm too scared. Oh, you know, that would risk my job and blah, 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 and everything. So I think it's a choice. So not everyone has a choice. And I also went for... These, this, there's a group called the Architects Working Inquiries and they're going to start a union for architects and there are lots of young part ones sitting at the table out there um, really scared about the bullying culture that they were entering into and you know they were being overworked, underpaid and they really wanted to rise up against and do something and I sat there and asked them why do you want to be an architect? You have a choice you know, go and do something else that you know is not going to affect your quality of life. And, and, and they were like, no, but we want to be architects. So there are people out there, against most other people's better judgment, who still want to be architects. And what do we do for them? Like the younger generation is really, really scared because there's so much bad press and negativity about long hours, the bullying culture, poor salaries, not much rise in progression and such and such and such. So there has to be a huge change in the image and we have to be talking and we have to be, stop being so scared about talking about money. I think that's another thing that uh, Dan and I have talked about that. Why are we so, so scared to talk about money openly? Why are we so scared to demand the salary that we're worth? Or, or I mean, there's an open REBA salary guide, but I don't think most people get paid as per that REBA salary guide. Do they? I don't know. I, I think that kind of segues to the idea of privilege too, about it becoming yeah. a privileged profession. So yeah. if you're looking at the final salary, you're going to be going into debt. It's actually a very, it, it was once a gentleman's profession and perhaps it's returning to that. So. 
something. I mean, in a, in a strange way, though, it is a genderless argument that the biggest problems that architecture faces is that it's the value systems by which what we do day to day, what it results in, and we've got lots of issues that come out of the way architecture is delivered and procured and what the end result of it is in terms of affordability or the, how it deals with uh, social need. And uh, we had a lady, uh, Joe Cowan, who came to one of our earlier talks who basically just cut out the middleman and said, I'm an architect, I've worked at Foster's, I've worked at Rogers, and I'm just going to set up the investment fund and become essentially my own client. And the problem that we, I think, frequently face as architects is that the, the developer is the impediment to actually creating things with value beyond the financial. And that's sort of genderless, but in a sense, that's where the, this all leads. That you've, if you stop that, I think you, you create the opportunity for the whole value system of architecture to change. And that gender is part of that, obviously. Then pass yours after. No, it's okay. You can go first, and then well, you can work it out. Yeah. <laughs> I was. I was just really trying to. Would like to pick up on that point, but also to say that I'm one of those old women. Um, I trained. I was in the media. I trained at 45 to be an architect. I'm now a granny. Uh, and I find it's really helpful to be in denial, both about the issue of age, but equally about the issue of whether I'm a woman. Um, but more importantly, just picking up on this point that's been made, we, we, we sound slightly as though we're being sorry for ourselves. And I think what we're not doing is talking about the things that actually women and women architects, but also whether we're clients, whether we're women developers, uh, where we are better than the men at doing various things. And I think one of them is going to be the thing that bring, brings about change. We are much better collaborators we are more empathetic, we listen, and I think those are the things that if we use this across the industry, that bit by bit, I think that's gonna force change. I think these old men, my kind of age, they are being you know, pushed out of the top, and I think there's some really exciting things going on at the lower down in these companies. And I think we have to have a bit more self-confidence. Yeah, it's a very quick follow-up to um, just ask. I mean, the very first step would be don't say no. I organize a lot of events. I'm an engineer. And I've kept the stats over the last two years. Two-thirds of the women I asked to speak tell me, let me check my deadline, let me check with my boss, I'm not the best, you should speak to someone. I, th this is not an exaggeration, I've kept the numbers, I'm the engineer. The men have never told me they couldn't speak, and I get requested because how dare I not invite them to speak. So before you even ask, just say yes. And if you're rubbish, think about all the men you have heard at events who are rubbish. <laughs> Don't tempt me, I will say something. 
Um, I just wanted to pick up on this lady's positive note. Um, I'm head of growth at The Collective. We're a co-living startup. Um, we uh, design, uh, build, and operate co-living spaces. Um, and what I've noticed from our company and other friends who work for property startups and the more newer, innovative um, companies in the sector is that they are all, our company included, much more advanced in terms of flexibility, um, inclusion, diversity, and are thus able to attract um, much higher quality of talent. Because I think you know, young women and the next generation of young women and, and young ethnic minorities don't want to go and work in traditional companies which are run by old white men in suits who talk about a housing crisis and then go home to their Surrey mansions <laughs> at the weekend. Um, and I think what that's going to result in is that the companies that are refusing to change these things are going to become completely obsolete. And I think that's a really positive note is that there's all, and it may take some decades. I mean, that's a negative view, but maybe, maybe quicker than that. But I think they will run themselves into the ground and it, they will be replaced by these vanguards and these innovative companies that are truly driving change in this industry. And that is something to be embraced. I'm going to act on Hannah's advice. I'm not really much of a public speaker, so here we go. <laughs> um, myself and Fran here, we work for Community-Led Housing London. We're an advice and resource hub for community-led housing groups across the capital who are coming together to essentially be their own clients. And it's kind of building upon your point back there. It's not so much um, female only, but it's genderless. Um, but communities coming together and kind of setting their own agenda around social value and return and sustainability and what does sustainable economics looks like and all these great and wonderful things. And it's, it's really diverse, actually. The people that we have inquiries from are, you know, um, a split gender, but also from diverse backgrounds. And people are really interested in it. And for me, personally, while I'm interested in that job is because I think housing is a feminist issue. And I think what we can do is when we put communities in power of being a developer, um, we can see a diversification of housing because at the moment housing design is completely dictated by financial systems and actually if we put communities in control of it, we might see better homes and supporting living the way that people actually want to live, whatever gender you are. So sharing domestic work, sharing gardens, having a built material and a passive house standard and all the great things that come with that when you're the client. Yeah, I think one one thing about the model that I've been thinking about lately, and this is my half form, was just the kind of colonial act of extracting value from land, which is implicit in development, um, and how we talk about regenerating, which suggests that these places are degenerate. We still have the language of slum clearance. We still have the language um, that really is an ex in a a negative starting point, really. And some of the things you're describing is disrupting that idea where it's no longer about land extraction. Um, it's, about, it's about enabling. And I think that's, that's where, you know, some of the things that Dan have talked about has been about enabling people, you know, putting people together and, and allowing things to happen. And even this call for, for people within businesses to be champions and to kind of, is about enabling each other. And all of a sudden, it's not a conversation of turning up and extracting value and figuring out how you extract the maximum value, but how do you put value in? So I think that's, that's my connective tissue.
Hi, um, I'm Maria. I'm also an engineer. I'm a structural engineer. And you might know the numbers better than me, but I imagine we might be even worse in gender diversity. Um, I go to a lot of talks, and I find generally in engineering it will be male-dominated. But if you go to a talk on gender, it will be female-dominated. But also, if you go to talks on sustainability, you go on talks on um, social justice or community, it's also female-dominated. And one of the greatest challenges today that we have as an industry is environmental sustainability. And the IPCC report was just released again, and it says we have uh, 12 years. By 2030, we have to reduce our global carbon emission by 45%. And we see that women in general have a larger, or they attend these talks in greater numbers anyway, so that would suggest a larger interest in this. And I think we should step up and take responsibility to change the industry and be leaders in the industry. I think for a little while on the AJ, when heads of sustainability came through, I noticed they were all women, and it seemed to be an area where if you were highly technical, it used to be interiors, and then all of a sudden it was sustainability. Um, but it was a brilliant, it's a brilliant space. And then actually I noticed placemaking is also one that's heavily dominated by, by women as well. But Chris, you, you're in a lot of sustainable circles, so do you have a perspective on that? Yeah, I do, and I, I want to try and pull a couple of things together. Is Murray still here, or is he sat out in the rain? Um, <laughs> and, and linked to the sustainability point, because there's a lot of architects. Actually, how many architects here work for a firm which has signed up to Architects for an Emergency or one of those other ones? OK. Um, and I'm kind of like, OK, guys, what are you going to do about it? Um, yeah. Are you going to refuse to work for the evil clients that are trashing the planet? Or are you just going to do it and just kind of complain under the table? And, it, and it's a bit like Murray's point. Um, I think I would sign up if, if, I, if I could be sure that the firms of architects that we were working with had um, really good kind of approach to people and HR and so on. Um, that would influence us. You know, we, we're a living wage employer. Um, actually, we, we pay properly. We, I like to think we pay our architects properly. We, we're not kind of 2% merchants or whatever um, because we think we get a better job. So I would sign up to that. And similarly, I would sign up to architects who refuse to work for clients trashing the planet. Um, but somehow there's a kind of massive cultural change we need to make to get people like me to say we're only going to work with practices like that. I, I would completely sign up as well. But I think um, as I've been an architect um, overworking to extreme amounts in the past, I, I understand how architects feel and I tell them all the time as a client, do not do, not do any more than I ask you to and only do the things, you know, the, the m minimal amounts. But there's al always this kind of... An, um, inherent kind of um, quality with architectures go that, that you know just further and further and try and impress and impress and so I think it goes both ways in a way I think we, we probably do need to agree between us that and, and really sign up to those beliefs and, and really kind of follow it through really and I'll just add, um, one of the most thought-provoking um, presentations I was ever witness to was when I was on the board of the ARB. 
and a client came in, a big housing developer, and told us what they thought the problem was with architects, um, which sounds incredibly negative, but actually it was in incredibly helpful. Um, and they said something that I'd never heard before. They said, we all get the sort of tenders in and we'll pick the one that we want, but we'll actually say to them, your prices are too low and we'll completely renegotiate the package. We know that you're going to do far many more drawings than you've actually said you will. You'll do this, you'll do that. We, will, we want a good job from you. Um, it's no use to us if you're sort of resentful and overworked and <laughs> unable to complete because you've put in something that's far too low. And I was quite amazed to be sitting there hearing a client say that. I wanted to ask about unpaid competitions. Do you, do you hire an architect without them even having to send you a sketch? Yes. But do you think there's an issue with the unpaid work that firms are supposed to... Many times the architects do thousands and thousands of, of work before they even get a fee. So is that an issue? Sorry, I just want to add, um, I think one of the things that we have to do to change where we are and where we want to go is we, we have to educate people. So one of the things that I do at work is I educate my colleagues on how is the way we should work. So I try to teach them as much as I know, like from my experience, so they can pass it on to the rest people. But what I do is I teach my clients because lighting is not the most sustainable thing. You know, we, we use lots of energy. So we work with lots of hotels and we normally get really lovely locations like the Caribbean or so many other areas in the world. So it's my job to educate my clients and then say, I'm not going to use your brand standards because I think this is outrageous and this is the wrong place to do it. So I will challenge you, and instead of designing to 50 lux for pathways, we're going to design to moonlight. So exterior lighting, I'm not going to design facades for all your buildings because this is a beautiful dark island. You have so much of wilderness. And people is traveling so far to enjoy this place that is a paradise. So the moment I start putting my lights, we're wiping out the sky, and we cannot see the stars. So sell your project as a different way. Uh, and because I had a point that came across really strong for the client, they changed their standards and say, OK, you do whatever you think is necessary. You do whatever we, we need. As long as it's safe, you do it. So I think a very important part from in our hands is to educate people. So if we think that our clients can be evil in a way, well, it's partly our responsibility because we're not stopping them, we're not directing them to what is best. Mm -hmm. And I think there is power in being sometimes the only female voice in the room or one of a, uh, a different, because often I, if I'm in a meeting room like that, there's two ways I can go. I can be quiet, as you said, or I can be like, actually, none of you identify with me anyway, so I might as well be noisy. Yeah. Right, because it's like you're not going to judge me on the basis. I'm not wearing the blue suit already. I'm already the weirdo. I've got this accent. You guys all think that's, I don't know, <laughs> odd. I say aluminum and leisure, so I might as well say something else outrageous too. <laughs> you don't have to be the loudest in the room, but you just have to voice out. Mm -hmm. How are we for time? Are we? Is it time to? 
Pardon? It's time to sum up. Is that my job as chair? Okay, women are brilliant. Don't call them a girl if they ha probably have pubic hair. Good guide. If you think they probably have pubic hair, don't, don't call them a girl. Don't call them a lady because it's like, it's just lame. Nobody's, a, you know what I mean? It means that you don't swear. I don't even know what that means, but property likes to call you that. Smash glasses if you need to get attention in a room. And um, yeah, don't discriminate against older women because they have a lot of experience and they're brilliant. And I think young women, I've heard of young women interviewing older women who have not hired them because they're intimidated. That's stupid. Um, other things that are stupid? Support other women. Yeah? Pardon? Yes. Yeah. No interrupting. You just interrupted. No, I'm just joking. You didn't. <laughs> Anything else? Ask for more. Yes, go in there and ask for it. Because yeah. no one else is going to ask for it for you. And um, don't fall for imposter syndrome. Yeah. You're not an imposter. Own your space. You be you. Don't try to be like them. And if they're really rubbish, quit. Go somewhere else. Yeah? Yeah. 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 You don't owe them anything, and you know what? At so, you know what? If you screw up, you screw up. Own it. But if you haven't screwed up, they're screwing up, right? They're screwing up. That's it. That's my summation. Good. Did I miss anything? No. Thank you, everybody. Hi. I'd like to. I'd just like to say thank you to our speakers. I, I'm now going to sum up badly, of course. I mean, Steve said we shouldn't sum up. Thank you for Emily. Uh, Angrahad, Chris and Donna and Christine for being a fantastic chair. I think that is spot on. And thank you all for your participation. That's exactly what these things should be about. I think we've had probably the biggest audience participation for the last few. So that's perfect. Eat, drink and be merry and car carry the conversations on. Cheers. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. For more on Negroni Talks, visit our website at www.fourthspace.co.uk where you can see all our past and upcoming events or find us and subscribe to the show in iTunes. Negroni Talks, mixing it in architecture. <laughs>